Well, tonight, well, today I did have a few people ask me, who's going to preach? Like, who's preaching? Do we have chapel? Yes, here we are. And then, and then um, some people were asking, well, Kim, you preached last week, so is Gavin preaching? But then Gavin, as you know, is on Island Chilliwack. Um, and so he's not here with us. Uh, so we were praying for Gavin and his family. Um, uh, but back in June, when we were planning for uh, what, what this year would look like, and, uh, and talking about this particular series and talking about contemplative spirituality, we, we wanted to have a couple people come. And so we had Alan come um, to start off this series. And so um, we, and then I really, really, really wanted uh, one of my pastors, Kirsten Annaby. And so Kirsten is planned back in June to be here. And so I'm so grateful. Now I've known Kirsten for a very long time. Now, um, like, like close to 15 years, I think. I think close to that. Now, I know Kirsten because a friend of mine uh, started in, um, well, was doing UCM. So anybody connected in with UCM, doing any UCM stuff? Anybody in the house? Yes, excellent. Okay, so my friend was uh, doing University Christian Ministries and, um, and uh, Kirsten was, were you her supervisor, her leader, her pastor? Her mentor, my, this is my friend, Carlene. She was my roommate. I was in her wedding. That was a great wedding, by the way. I really liked that wedding. I told them about how I hated weddings or hated being in weddings, but I was in that wedding. It was great. Anyways, uh, so I've met, I met Kirsten through Carlene. And um, when I think about somebody who is like genuine, like genuinely loves the Lord, genuinely loves people, I think of Kirsten. Yeah. Um, just a just a beautiful a beautiful woman of God who cares so deeply for people and has committed her ministry to UCM uh, for many many years and so have committed to uh, pastoring young adults just like yourselves um, and then just is it six months about eleven months COVID. Um, it's been 11 months, and so Kirsten has been, is now a pastor at Living Waters Church. And so just like last week, I had like my pastoral visit <laughs> with Kirsten and, uh, you know, crying and everything. You know how it goes. Um, but so Kirsten is such a wonderful gift to, to me, to my church, and will be a great gift to us tonight. And, um, and so would you help me to welcome Kirsten this evening? <laughs> Thank you, Kim. Um, isn't Kim great? So I just, you, you probably know this. You probably know that she is a gift to you. So um, we love her. She, she's also a gift to my kids because she's been their Sunday school teacher before. <laughs> um, I just want to, it was so good to worship with you guys today. And I just want to thank the worship team. Um, I really appreciated the theme. I don't know if you guys noticed that theme of resurrection in what we were singing tonight. And I just, I was really just reflecting on that as we were singing and about um, how resurrection is one of those, it's, it's, it's not, it, it, we feel, we feel resurrection sometimes, but it also um, is probably the most solid hope we have. 
And I think, um, I was just thinking about that, that some of you may have wanted to feel resurrection tonight and you didn't, but I want you to know that for all of us who love and know Jesus, um, it's, it's our future. It's our future. And um, we know, we know that we know that we know. This is one of these things that we sink our teeth into. And so I just wanted to say that, like, um, just be confident of that. We don't always have to feel things to, to know that they're real and to trust and rest in those. So anyway, I loved being with you guys, too, just because I actually miss young adults. Um, <laughs> I love my job as being an associate pastor in Fort Langley. Um, but I've always been a campus pastor. And um, I, um, even though I'm turning 50 next year and I'm way beyond being cool, I still feel at home with you guys. So um, thanks for letting me hang out with you tonight. I kind of feel like hanging out with young adults is kind of like lounging on a couch. Does that make sense? It's got that nice relaxed feel for me. I feel like I, I, I know, I know, I know what to do when I'm with you guys. So um, I'm great. I'm so happy to be with you tonight. Um, tonight, I want to talk about the Bible. And I want to talk about story. Two good things all together. I love a good story. Who else loves a good story? Yeah, I love, we love stories. Um, at our church, we occasionally have a Sunday where we let the people's stories, we have a few people, and we let their stories be the sermon. So instead of preaching, we listen to the stories of a few people in our community. We call these Story Sundays. We had one just last week, and it was so beautiful. Um, most people actually like these better than our sermon Sundays, and those of us who preach regularly really try not to take that personally. Um, <laughs> and we do this, we listen to people's stories because we believe in the unique power of each person's story. Each person is made in the image of God, and each person's story matters to God. Your story matters. Not just the story that you have lived in the past, but the story that you are in the midst of right now. It matters. I suspect that each of us frames our story in our own way, whether we've ever shared it with a group of people or not. Without even thinking about it, we make sense of the life that we're living, don't we? We might instinctively break the world into good guys and bad guys. We might have a persistent image of who we are in our story. We might be, we might be the hero. We might be the victim. Some days we might feel like the villain. Or maybe it changes depending on the day. What is your story? How do you make sense of your life? What are the challenges in the story that you're living? What are the victories that you're hoping for? Where are you going? And who are the friends who are helping you in the journey? They might be here in this room. Or are you going through a season where you really feel alone? And where is God in your story? When I uh, was in university, I was in a campus ministry that really shaped my life. And um, in this campus ministry, it was very cool to read deep books. 
And one of the ones that I read was a little book by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who has a really awesome story all his own. You should Google him. Um, and the little book was called Life Together. And a fair bit of it soared right over my head at the time. But one thing really stuck out to me. He said that what we call our life, our troubles, our guilt, is by no means the whole of reality. Our life, our need, our guilt, and our deliverance are there in the scriptures. Because it pleased God to act for us there, it is only there that we will be helped. Only in the Holy Scriptures do we get to know our own story. Now, I actually wrestled with this a fair bit because, wow, what's happening in my life day to day sure feels like the whole of reality. And what's happening in the Bible can seem pretty distant from what I'm living, if I'm honest. My default is for me to make my own life experience front and center, and then to kind of wonder where God fits in. What Bonhoeffer is saying here is that we need to flip the order around. We begin with God's story. And when we do, we have a clearer, a truer picture of what is happening in our own. And I've actually found that this is oftentimes what the Holy Spirit is doing when I sit down and read the Bible. My picture and my understanding of my life, of my story, is being reframed. I am gaining a clearer picture of where I'm going. I'm gaining a clearer picture of who I'm going with. I'm gaining a picture of who I am in the story. And more than anything else, I begin to see God more clearly, how my life fits in his story and what he is doing with my life. What I'd like to do in our time together today is to step back and think through how we get to know our own story through scriptures, how scripture speaks into and informs how we see the life that we're living. Before we go there, though, I need to talk about something that our culture believes that I would like to suggest is kind of a myth or an impossibility. Um, our culture believes that the only way that we discover our true identity, who we really are, is through an inward journey of discovery. Our own emotions and thoughts are what give us a genuine picture of who we are. That's what our culture teaches us. Our thoughts and our emotions are elevated above. Um, and the only way that we can have a genuine experience of knowing our true self is listening to our own internal emotions. You can see this in the stories that we tell, whether it's a Marvel comic or a Disney princess movie. I could sing Let It Go right now, but I won't. Uh, <laughs> let it go, let it go. Okay, there we go. Okay, so yeah, there we go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change clothes in just a minute and get really long blonde hair. Okay, um, most of the heroes celebrated in our stories are people who are learning to be who they truly are because they finally listened to their internal voice. And they're learning to be who they truly are in spite of the world around them. The arc of their story is that the abundant life 
Think about Elsa. Comes when they listen to their internal understanding of who they truly are. Now, we could talk for a long time about this, and I'm not going to. We could ask, for example, whether crafting an identity based off our own internal emotions is stable. How often do my emotions and my ideas change? But the main thing that I want to suggest tonight is a myth, is this. I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's actually possible to shape our identities exclusively from our own thoughts and emotions, because that's not the way we were made. We were made to be in relationship with God. And so we are always being influenced and looking beyond something beyond ourselves. I might think that my understanding of my own story is only coming from my own ideas, but it's not. It's coming from my history, from my family. It's coming from every relationship I've been in. It's coming from every story that I've read or heard or watched on social media or Netflix or YouTube. So the question I have to ask myself is, what is shaping my understanding? What is shaping my read of my story? And if there has to be someone who is helping us to understand this life we're living, wouldn't it be great if it was the one who made us? Wouldn't it be great if it was the one who loves us, who died for us, and who knows us better than we know ourselves? So how does Jesus use scripture to help us understand our own story? Well, one of the things that Jesus does is through scripture, he keeps us from living out the wrong story. There are a lot of stories out there, and they aren't all right. Consider the plot line of most romantic movies. They usually present, your classic rom-com, usually presents love as a rather vibrant, mysterious event of the emotions. Uh, it's not an event that can be helped, and it happens to us. And all that we can do is respond. Uh, oftentimes in these movies, the faithfulness and consistency of marriage is presented as bland and boring. And if people are married in these movies, they aren't happy. The place where people in these movies find real love is usually outside of their marriage if they are married. And we want them. We usually want people to have an affair in these kinds of movies because we want them to be happy. That's how the, the, that's how the arc of the story goes. And these storylines do affect us. The, the idea that real love is something that just happens to us um, really shapes how we see romantic love. And then we have to wrestle with the hard work of building a lasting romantic relationship. Dating is work. It's really fun too, but sometimes it's hard work. I, I want to say I've been married for 12 and a half years and dating was good, but marriage is better and marriage gets better every year. Um, the right person for us though is often not perfect. 
Actually, they're never perfect. Um, they're usually a combination of qualities that um, some of them we think are absolutely amazing and some of them are like, well, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll live with that one. Um, <laughs> so we have to temper the storyline that we've been fed by our culture with a new storyline. So this is where scripture comes in and begins to shape our story and tell us that love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, you can look at that in one of two ways. You could look at that and go, wow, that sounds like a lot of work. And that would be true. Or you could look at that list and go, wow, what would it really be like to be loved by somebody like that? Um, when I was dating my husband, one of the pictures I had, because I could see he had character written all over him, like awesome character. And one of the things, the pictures I had was of presents under a Christmas tree. And I felt like his character, the different aspects of his character, his integrity, his kindness, all these things were like gifts under the Christmas tree. And I was going to be opening those gifts for the rest of my life. And I think God must have given me that picture because it's been really true. He's a wonderful dad and he's a wonderful husband. I open those gifts every day. Um, in the new storyline, we ask if this is a person that we can truly love. And we ask if we are being truly loving. It's more about choice, about honest conversations, and about being careful with another person's heart. And yeah, the, the sexual chemistry is there. The feeling of being in love and those moments of utter and joy and bliss are there. But they are partially the fruit of commitment, of patience, of honesty and grace. It's a very different story than your classic rom-com, but it's the story scripture tells us. And because of that, it's the one that actually works. We are immersed in storylines that do not deliver what they promise because they're not based on the truth of who we are as people. And we don't want to live those stories. They look so shiny and beautiful, but in the end, the movie isn't what we thought it would be. Allowing scripture to shape our stories helps us to live the stories that truly satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. And I want to use two images to talk about how scripture does this. Um, the first is of a lens. Reading scripture gives us a lens that enables us to see the good life with clarity. You may notice that I wear glasses and I notice that they're a little bit dirty, uh, but <laughs> these help me to see the world with clarity. Um, they're important. If I can't see them, my vision is distorted, kind of like our vision, uh, because we all are broken people. Scripture functions Oh, I can see you now. Hi, everybody. Uh, scripture functions like these. It's a lens that clarifies what we're seeing. There are these moments in Scripture that intentionally reverse 
our understanding of what the good life is. And these sections are meant to radically change our perspective on our stories. One of the best examples of this is the Beatitudes. This is Jesus' intro to the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm just going to say, it's a killer intro. It's really good. And the whole point of it is to clarify our understanding of what the abundant life looks like. And I'm going to read it in the message so you can kind of hear it fresh. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel that you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. We should just put that beatitude up on Instagram everywhere. Um, okay, let's okay, I'll move on. You're blessed when your commitment to God <laughs> provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed. Every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me, what it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even, for though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. This is not our classic cultural picture of what it means to be blessed, is it? But Jesus' point here is to free us up from our assumption that the easy, the pleasurable, or the comfortable life is best. For me, the one that has become the most meaningful is actually the first one, where Jesus says in a more traditional translation, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the one that applies the minute we realize how broken and far from Jesus we are. And just because we realize it, we're blessed. Sometimes looking at our lives through a lens like this helps us either to realize that we've been headed in the wrong direction or what's felt like the wrong direction or failure is actually right. And we are right in the middle of God's blessing. Um, in 2017, U2 released their album, Songs of Experience, and in it, Bono does his own riff on the Beatitudes. Blessed are the bullies, he writes, for one day they will have to stand up to themselves. Blessed are the liars, for the truth can be awkward. Blessed are the arrogant, for theirs the kingdom of their own company. 
Blessed are the superstars for the magnificence in their light. We understand better our own insignificance. Blessed are the filthy rich, for you can only truly own what you give away, like your pain. Bono is a bit of a prophet and has that uncomfortable habit of pointing out the kind of truths we'd rather not look at square in the face. And this, too, is a lens. It's a reflection on our cultural lens of what it means to be blessed. Which pair of glasses will truly give me eyes to see? I find that it's easier to default to the lens my culture has handed me. It's all around me. It's easier, and it asks less of me in the beginning, but it robs my soul in the end. I want to read my story through Jesus' eyes. So the first image is of a lens, and the second is of a target. Scripture helps to clarify where God is leading us. Um, A lot of discipleship is about knowing where Jesus is taking you. A lot of growing in maturity is getting a clearer target. And I can't tell you how often I have found myself headed towards the wrong target. Um, One thing I think of from my 20s is that my idea, well, not my 20s, I'm lying, now, like my whole life, uh, my idea of holiness has often been bound up in how productive I have been or in how much I can get done. Thank you for humming. That makes me feel so much more normal. So when I was in my 20s, I used to work too much so that I could be told that I was working too much. And then I felt like I was working enough. And I wore my busyness like a badge of honor. I was busy, I was important, and I was exhausted. And I would read Matthew 11, 28 to 30 with longing. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I wanted that rest so badly. Other people told me that I was taking on responsibility or senses of obligation that weren't mine especially my husband, who is much healthier than me in this respect, (laughs) I began to realize that there was nothing virtuous about being busy. In fact, I began to realize that my busyness was not motivated by a desire to do good, but driven by a fear of not looking good enough, not being significant enough, so many not enoughs. And the more I realized that, the more I actually felt sick to my stomach about my busyness. You see, my goal, my target was beginning to change. And I began to pray that rather than being driven from behind by compulsions and fears, that I would be led by the Spirit in the way Jesus wanted me to go. See, God has over many years reshaped my picture of holiness in this area. He's reshaped the target. So I'm shooting in a different direction now. And notice first he changed my thoughts. And then he changed my emotions where it didn't feel good anymore to overwork. And now he's in the careful process of changing my 
behavior, the long process. And he's still doing that work in me. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 12, 1 to 2. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, your target, which is good and pleasing and perfect. I love the phrase, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. The first step is the transformation of our minds. When we truly understand the brokenness of our old way of being and see health in a new way, when lies are broken, our old way begins to lose its hold on us. And you know, it hasn't just been scripture that has done this. It has also been the body of Christ that has helped shape my understanding. But it is the body of Christ rooted in scripture. As we seek to understand what is holy, or you could even say what is healthy, those two are more connected than we sometimes think, Life looks like the Bible is our guide. It gives us our goal. So scripture is a lens that helps us see the true story, and it's a target that shows us the goal, the purpose, the direction of our stories. And scripture also helps us to see the characters of our story. And the first character it shows us is ourselves. My friend Susan um, became a believer in her 30s, and she had read a lot of self-help books before she met Jesus. But when she started to read the Bible, she realized that all of those self-help books had stolen their material. Scripture gives us our new identity as believers. If you look at the letters in the New Testament, you find that so much of what the authors is, are doing is trying to give us a sense of what our new identity is. Now, if you're like me, you need to hear these things regularly. And even then, it's hard for them to sink in. I used to read these and be hard on myself and that I hadn't made them a part of my identity fully yet. And one day I thought, wait a minute, why does Paul have to say this in letters over and over again? Maybe they were having a hard time getting it too. So take heart. Um, this is why Paul says these things over and over again. Things like this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Or 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's who you are. Scripture is kind of like a mirror that reflects a double vision. It reflects who we are. It reveals in us our brokenness, our sin, our need for healing. 
but it also reveals who we are in Jesus, who he sees us as, and who he is making us to be. We can see this in James 1, where James writes, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen the word to the word and don't obey, it is like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Now, straight up, this is a challenging passage for all of us because we always find ways that we're not fully consistent in applying scripture. We get so wrapped up in our guilt that we miss what James is saying about our identity. Because of Christ in us, we have been made into someone new. And as we spend time in scripture, we begin to absorb that new identity. We go, like there's kind of a rhythm, a back and forth of reading and practicing, living it out. It becomes who we are. This is how the Holy Spirit works. It's not a quick thing. It's a lifelong thing. But if we don't spend time in Scripture, the Holy Spirit is lacking his primary tool for giving us that new identity. And we begin to listen to those other voices. Does that make sense? Like the Bible. And I didn't even bring my Bible tonight. Isn't that horrible? My Bible should be here. Uh, The Bible (laughs) is the thing that gives us that alternate picture, that alternate narrative of who we are. Second scripture, oh, let me just say one more thing. Susan said that the self-help book stole because she realized that the root wisdom in anything worthwhile that she'd read about how to become truly human came from the Bible. And I think that's really true. It might sometimes sound like a bit of an archaic book, but it's more wise than anything else that you're going to pick off the shelf. And it gives us a picture of God, the true God. One thing thing that um, reading the Bible does is it just gives God more airtime in our hearts and our minds. Um, And I've had my times where I've had a hard time spending time in Scripture. What I discover, though, is that when I'm regularly in the world of Scripture, in God's world, I'm more able to hear His voice just out when I'm walking around. Um, I consider His perspective more, and I understand His heart better. The Holy Spirit speaks to us a lot of different ways but one of the most fundamental ways is through the Bible. It also helps us to learn how God usually acts. And this is so helpful for us in stories because it helps us to understand what God is doing in our lives. You know, sometimes I'll be in a a discipleship or a mentoring appointment with someone and they'll, the person will share with me something that God has said to them and I'll get a little smile on my face because I, and I, sometimes I'll say it out loud. I'll be like, that sounds like God. Um, (laughs) And I think we just get a sense of what God, what's the kind of thing that God does. Like, for example, God usually prioritizes what builds trust and relationship over what is easiest for us. 
I think about the story of Gideon in the Old Testament when he started out with 32,000 warriors. God whittles down his army to 300 people so that people, that the people and Gideon can know who won the battle for them. He's building trust. Another thing God does is chooses unlikely candidates for the job um, because he's looking at different criteria. You think about the story of David being anointed by Samuel. Um, He goes through all of these really handsome buff brothers until he gets to the youngest and says, this is the one. Um, When we, when I was a campus pastor at SFU, okay, we had a funny acronym. Uh, We said, we're looking for fat people. Um, We're looking for people who are faithful, available, and teachable. We don't want the shiny people. We want the people who come. We want the people who are willing to grow because we have seen what Jesus can do with those people. That's who God chooses. God often brings the greatest transformation, I've learned, through our deepest failures. Think about Peter's denial and reinstatement. That's what God does. And it's very like God to oftentimes allow a future leader to go through a wilderness time to refine and prepare them for what lies ahead. And that's a good thing, a good thing to think about. Uh, we, we don't get prepared quickly for great things. Uh, it happens slowly. You think about Moses. You think about Joseph. You think about David. You think about Paul. You know, there's like 10 years in between the road of Damascus when Paul is struck down and when he starts doing active ministry. It takes time to be made into the kind of person that God can use. Um, The other thing that scripture does is it keeps us from making God into our own image. And our culture is really good at this. Uh, People select the attributes of their gods like they select ice cream sundae toppings, don't they? Um, And we Christians can be very good at this too. It's just a bit more subtle. I mean, we're not like picking little parts of Buddhism and Taoism and all that kind of stuff. But we do, if we don't read the Bible, and if we just rely on our experience, slowly and subtly change who God is in our minds. We can sometimes rub off the sharp corners of Jesus's message. Uh, We forget that he said things like, blessed are the people. Blessed are you when people insult or persecute you. Or if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We can make our experience of faith less a taking up of our cross and more of a self-actualization experience. And it's not that. That's a byproduct. What we are is disciples. We are followers. It's not the God who loves us and rescues us and who changes us, this God that we make in our own image. And that's the God that we want. What we find in Scripture is God and how he relates to us. What we find is the true God, not the one that we've made up in our heads. We are made in his image, not the other way around. And I have found that as I have grappled with the God of Scripture, that I am transformed through the process. 
the more time I spend relating to God through scripture, prayer, and life, the more real and vibrant he becomes. And I find that the most powerfully with Jesus. When I enter into the Gospels, I find that I am each person who relates to Jesus. I am the crowd running after Jesus because he teaches like no one ever has, running after him because he offered me bread. I am the disciples, getting it wrong over and over again, but at the same time getting it right just by sticking with Jesus, no matter how ineptly, having incredible insight at one moment and totally messing up in the other. I am the Pharisees, struggling with the impropriety of God's mercy and wanting credit for my external goodness, looking for brownie points and being instead given an invitation into humility that I find difficult to accept. I am the Samaritan woman, exposed to the core by Jesus' perception, but feeling right about myself for the first time in my life. I am the woman caught in adultery, comforted rather than condemned. I am the paralytic by the pool who is confronted with the question of whether I want to get well. I am Peter, denying Jesus in his greatest point of need. And I am Mary Magdalene, who discovers that all the sorrow in the world is coming undone when she realizes that the man whom she thought was the gardener is actually Jesus, miraculously and fully alive. And as I am each of these characters, as I live in those stories, their judgments and critiques of Jesus expose me. Their responses to Jesus call me to my own response. And his care of and for them comforts me. As I walk through the Gospels, I walk through the truth of the Incarnation and ask myself how I would have responded if I had been Peter, had been Nicodemus, had been Pilate. And I find that Jesus is just as disconcerting, radical, and gloriously loving as he was then. It is your life and mine that is made in God's image. But it is when we dwell in Scripture that the living God is revealed to us. And after dwelling in Scripture, we look at our own lives differently. So let's let him do that work. I would just encourage you to spend time in Scripture and to make it a practice. I think it's our practices that shape us um, more than uh, big, epic, one-time emotional experiences. It's our practices. And um, as you dwell in Scripture, he will begin to help you understand your story. He will help you to understand his plans for your story. Because I don't care how dark it is, in our points of greatest failure and weakness, Jesus plans parties and, and is so delighted to move us forward into the good future he has for us, into the plans that he has been planning for us. 
And we only discover that when we let him speak to us and reframe our hearts and understand this life that we're living. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, that you are good. You are good. You are good. We thank you that you are loving. We rest in those truths. We rest in the truth that you have conquered sin. You have conquered death. You have conquered our brokenness. We rest in the truth that you are plotting good in our lives. Even if sometimes we feel broken and forgotten, it's not true. The story that you share in the scriptures is different. You tell us the story of the one who goes after the, the, the one that leaves the 99 and goes after the one. That's your heart for us. And we ask you, Lord Jesus, think about all the songs that we prayed, that worship today, that talked about laying our lives down before you. And we just want to lay them down before you today, Lord. Help us to understand the lives we're living. Give us a true narrative to live by. Help us to understand the plot and the hope that may be hidden from us right now. Lord, if we are in despair, I pray that you would help us to see the arc, the narrative arc that is just around the corner, the turn that is going to happen, that is going to make everything work. Lord Jesus, Lord, we commit our lives to you, uh, trusting in your goodness and your mercy. And we ask you to shape our hearts, clarify our vision. Lord Jesus, help us to see you clearly. Help us to see our own lives clearly. And help us most of all to know you. To know you and to continue to draw close to you, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. What a beautiful, um, oh, what a beautiful story, right? Or like beautiful, beautiful, thank you. Oh, you delivered. Um, <laughs> um, but just, I just feel that um, compelling, that, like he, when Jesus called out to, um, who was the very short man? Zacchaeus. Gold star, guys. When he called out to Zacchaeus, he said, okay, I'm coming to your house. Like, prepare for me. I'm coming to your house. I feel like that's the invitation for us tonight. Come into your house. Prepare. I want to spend time with you. And we get to do that every day with God's word. And so thank you for that reminder. Thank you for that. What a blessing. Um, Yeah, I encourage you to, like, reflect on what to do with this. Bless you guys as you go tonight. We look forward to seeing you at community break tomorrow at 9.30ish. Have a really wonderful night. Would you help me and thank Kirsten once more for coming tonight? Have a good night, guys.